You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the coaching profession. Tune in for more episodes for anything coaching related in game, outside of the game, and anything in between. On today's episode, we are joined by John Leonzo, assistant women's basketball coach at Wright State University and creative leonzobasketball.com. Coach, we can't thank you enough for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. Thank you guys for having me. So before we kind of get going with our opening tip, our opening segment, we just wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of promote your program. Uh, you know, uh, any anything you guys are doing doing special here, uh, any any players or, you know, where you guys are going here this season. Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, I'm an assistant coach at Wright State. Our staff is brand new. Uh, our head coach, her name is Carrie Hoffman, was my boss for the last five years at Cedarville University, which is a Division II school in Dayton. Um, so she was uh, my boss there, and I was very fortunate when she got the job at Wright State that she allowed me to come over with her. So we've hit the ground running there with our team. We've really enjoyed uh, the summer session, and then even now this fall of just getting to know our new team. Uh, work with the girls, build trust with them, and just kind of share where we want to take the program. And they, they've had tremendous success there in the past, and we're really hoping that we can keep that going uh, while still putting our own unique stamp on it. So, Well, we, uh, we've both been followers of you for a long time, so we kind of wanted to start off with you, just in our opening tip, kind of talk about LeonzoBasketball.com. Um, you know, what, what can you share to our listeners who have maybe not venture over to the website, you know, kind of take us through what made you started and, and what's your goal for it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's taken on many different iterations over the years. Um, really, I started, so when I was in college, I was a student manager at Cedarville University for the men's team there. Knew I wanted to get into college coaching, was not a player. Um, so my goal was just to be a sponge to learn whatever I could about the game. Um, and I very quickly found that there was just so many people in the coaching profession that were willing to share their time with me that would um, you know respond to my emails asking for help would give me practice film game film notes whatever it may be uh, and I was just so blessed to have people like that invest into me and so very quickly I realized one of the best ways for me to learn is to kind of take what I'm learning repurpose it uh, and then teach it to somebody else and so I began sharing content online uh, just with different basketball coaching blogs. Uh, and that just kind of went on from really 2011 to 2015. Uh, and then upon graduating from college, I started kind of working in basketball full-time just for myself, where I was doing my own player development with some overseas players and some college players in the area. I was running camps, clinics, doing all of that. Uh, and then very quickly, I was like, okay, well, maybe I can kind of take my website up a notch too. Now that I'm just doing basketball all the time, I'm no longer a student. And so then uh, that's whenever I registered for the actual domain name, leonzobasketball.com. And, you know, very quickly just started kind of adding different coaching videos on there just as a means, number one, for me to pursue what I wanted to learn about the game. And then number two, to share it with other people. So I continued doing that for about a year um, and then got into a little bit of hot water copyright wise, because I had like, NBA games on there and I was kind of repurposing that um, to the point where I was I was like this is not meant for me to like make a lot of money off of I just want to help other people 
Um, and it's, you know, I, I need to pivot and find out how to get around this. So then uh, I pivoted to taking some of the things that we were doing with our team at Cedarville and then sharing those on there as well. So now if you were to go on the website, neonzobasketball.com, you would find a lot of the basketball stuff that we've done with our teams, whether that's how we've played, concepts that we teach, drills that we use, um, skills, and kind of how we install them. And so that's how the site's broken up now. Uh, there's a section on dribble drive offense, transition offense, and skill development. Um, and there you just have a lot of video that kind of showcases what we believe in, how we want to play, um, and what you know was worked really well for our old teams at Cedarville, and hopefully will work really well for our new team at Wright State. So all in all, it's just been an ever-evolving station uh, where I can post basketball content as a way to, first and foremost, learn myself, um, and then number two, to try to give back uh, and help others in the same way that so many people have generously helped me. So, so uh, and this is kind of off script here, but you just, you know, we you talked about like your whole coaching staff being new. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of coaches, whether it's high school coach or college, whatever, they take over a new program. So can you talk a little bit about like your guy, the process of, you know, coming into to Wright State and and kind of getting that all together, right? You got to figure out your players. You got to figure out what system works. You're obviously going to take some stuff from where you've been, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a blend. So uh, could you talk about that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that has been nice is we, we have a staff of five. So again, I mentioned it's our head coach, Carrie, and myself. We've worked together for a long time. Another one of our coaches, her name's Abby, she actually played at Cedarville for us, so she's familiar with everything that we do. Uh, we brought a coach from the men's staff at Cedarville onto our staff now, so he had kind of seen it from afar. Uh, and then our final staff member is Megan Losinger, and she was the head coach at Evangel College in Missouri, uh, or maybe Evangel University, rather. But she's played professionally in the WNBA and overseas, so she has a lot of really good basketball experience. So uh, the staff transition has been really easy just because you have a lot of bright people um, that kind of believe in the same things and are um, committed to like one core idea, but then open to seeing how we can sharpen each other and make it better. Um, and then, you know, where, where we've really had to kind of cut our teeth is figuring out, okay, how do we take a team that's had a ton of success playing a certain way um, and then bring what we believe and mesh those two things together. So we took a really measured approach. Uh, you know, we, we got a lot of feedback from coaches that had taken over jobs um, and one of their first things to do in the summer was to start teaching their system. And then you get to the end of teaching your system and you realize, well, maybe this doesn't fit the team that we have right now. Um, so we opted to do a lot of the same skill development stuff that we've always done throughout the first part of the summer and really into the first part of the fall as well. Um, and then through that, uh, the core concepts of, of what we believe in, how we want to play in regard to speed, one second decisions, attacking off the catch. We were able to put those things in, but then also learn the girls' individual games well and then blend that with what we believe in uh, from, from a team offense standpoint. So it's ever-evolving and always growing, but I think the blessing of having the summer and then the early fall to work on skill with our staff that's already really cohesive was super helpful in that. So just before moving on, I, I think that's always a really interesting question for coaches that take over a program. It's you know, that first year, you may not have the recruits or, you know, even in high school, you know, the, the players that have maybe the skill set or the, the skills that you're looking for in your system. So kind of what would be your advice to maybe some young head coaches that are taking over in a high school or taking over at a small college? You know, what are the keys the first year? Do you kind of try to put the system in and have the players adapt around it? Or, 
kind of see what your talent is and your skill set and adapt your system to that. Just kind of what's your advice there? Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing I would say is ask me in March um, <laughs> after we've kind of walked through it. Um, but on, on a serious note, our, our approach has been to have a blend of where I think it's really important as a coach to, to have convictions in regard to what you believe in um, and be solid in those. But then also remember that you can be a little bit more liberal in what tactics you use to employ those. Um, so again, for us, there's, there's the core of how we want to play offensively, which is, you know, spaced floor, room to attack off the catch, one second decisions, the ball moving. There's a lot of different systems that allow you to play that way. Um, and so for us, I think it's, it's just that blend of those are the things that, that, that we know have had success with and believe in. And so we're going to double down on those. Um, and then the, the specifics and details around that obviously can take shape and we can mold those around our team. So probably a blend of both. Um, but again, I certainly don't have all the answers as I feel like we're, we're figuring it, figuring that same thing out as we're off and running right now. So. All right. So let's get into my favorite topic, which is pace of play transition offense. So you talk a lot about pace of play, a lot about early offense, a lot about quick ball movement, as you kind of already alluded to. I'm curious from you, what's the number of possessions in a college level offense, it's ideal for you guys. And then kind of sort of, if you want to adapt it, maybe it's the same number, maybe it's not. What would that ideal number of those possessions be for maybe a high school team trying to play that same pace? Hint, hint, I'm yeah. talking about myself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, really we made a big jump with our pace with our team at Cedarville in between the 1920 season and 2021. So the year that COVID stopped our season, we played relatively fast, but felt like at the end of the year, we really had another year to get to. Um, and we felt that we were leaving possessions or baskets rather on the floor by playing slowly. So um, basically the jump that we made with our team is we went from having about 74, 75 possessions in 1920, which is on the upper half of average, uh, at least in division two college women's basketball uh, to this past year, we were 85 possessions a game. So we were able to add 10 extra possessions a game. Um, so two to three a quarter. Um, and what that would equate to in high school, I'm not sure. You know, in college, we play a 40-minute game with a 30-second shot clock. So just by nature, the game's going to be maybe a little more accelerated than a high school game without a shot clock might be. Um, but I do know for us, kind of the goal is how can we get two to three more possessions a quarter with our pace. And so if I was a high school coach trying to play faster, I'd probably start there of how can we get two or three extra possessions uh, of pace per quarter and then just see kind of what number we land at there. All right, so you obviously want to play at pace, um, but I think it's important to link your defense to that pace, right? If you're playing a more passive defense, right, it's going to hurt, hurt your pace, right? Um, so how do you link your defense to that offensive pace? And then the second part of the question is, put your, put your coaching head on, if you're trying to stop a team at pace, how would you do that defensively? Yep, absolutely. So one area that we're probably a little bit different, or at least we, we were different with, with our teams at Cedarville, is we were a pack line, man-to-man -man defensive team, and then an up-tempo offensive team. Um, and oftentimes there is a misconception that a pack, like not every pack line team looks like the Virginia men, right? Where you're just going to grind out for 25, 30 seconds of the shot clock and do it on both ends. Um, so for us mainly, our reasoning for going to that is offensively, we were all about how can we attack the paint with the dribble and play out from there. 
defensively to flip that philosophy on its head. We want to guard from the inside out. We want to limit deep, deep paint drives. Pack line worked really well into that. Um, so needless to say, those two styles may not match in regard to generating and creating pace, but they do match in regard to what the end outcome of each one is. Some things that we did with our pack line at Cedarville. Number one, we were pretty game plan specific with how we were going to guard certain actions and like to pick spots to pressure. Um, one of those ways was just switching any kind of guard to guard ball screen or dribble handoff. That was a means that we were able to generate turnovers and create pace that way. We also had a freshman last year on our team that was an incredible on ball defender. And the minute she got in the game, she'd pick the thing up full court and she was able to generate steals that way as well. So Turnover percentage is a big part that goes into that. Um, and again, normally in women's basketball, at least in college, it's around 17 to 18. It's a lot of turnovers, unfortunately. Um, with those two adjustments, we were able to increase our turnover percentage forced from, I believe it was 16 and 1920 to 22 in 2021. So although we were a pack line team, we tried to find spots where we could really pressure and that would help kind of gear our pace up and generate a little bit of free and easy baskets. Um, and then the second part is you talk about defensively limiting transitions. So the first thing that I would say is score. If the ball's going through the net and you can set your defense and the other team has to take it out all the time, you're going to be able to limit some transition. The second thing that we would really emphasize in trying to slow down transition offense is just getting the ball picked up, declared early, and ideally trying to keep it on a side of the floor so that you know any pass that goes out is going to be across the court in the air you have time to recover uh, but then it also allows all of our defenders on the weak side to flood back to the paint and they're already locked in and help and from there we can kind of scramble out and play so i think all of those things matter um and then you know again additionally I, a big part of it is just if you have a player who can dog the ball and make that player who's getting the outlet catch coming backwards or think before they turn and, and, and try to get going up the floor, that makes a huge difference. So those are some things that have worked well for us and we certainly try to still emphasize. All right, so you just talked about your kind of uh, transition defense or defensive strategies and transies defensive strategies. Uh, what are some of the stats you're using to know, like if your defense is working, your, your transition defense is working, um, uh, against maybe a team that's like you, a, a fast-paced team, mm -hmm. right? Like, how would you how would you slow down a team? Uh, you know, what are the stats you're looking at to slow down a team like you that wants to play at fast pace? Yeah, so I think the first one would be a stat we'd have to keep ourselves, um, and that would just be at what point in the shot clock a shot is being attempted. Um, so generally speaking, you know, teams that play fast are trying to score between thirty and twenty, um, and they're really getting up and down. We would kind of have it as a game goal to make them play into the 14, 13, 12 area where they're having to kind of work a little bit. So that's a process focused stat that we would look at that you'd have to keep yourself on the sideline. Um, but that would be one of our go-tos. Of course, field goal, field goal percentage would, would, would be one of the ones that, you know, whether you're playing fast or slower, just trying to get you stops. Um, and then the third one, uh, would be just trying not to foul. That was one of the things that we really felt like when we played faster, we were able to put teams in compromising positions because they're playing catch up. We'd really stress trying to get back, get set, defend without fouling, um, knowing that if we were doing those things and being solid, the possession is going to go longer. We're not taking better players out because they're in foul trouble. We're not putting good players on the free throw line. So those three would kind of be benchmarks that, that we'd definitely be shooting for.
So kind of let's get into a little bit more of a position specific question here. When you're playing in a fast pace, specifically, what are two to three things for your point guard that you want them to be able to do to be successful? Yeah. Uh, so one of the first things is we really emphasize trying to get deep outlet catches. Um, and this is something I got from Zach Boyvere, who's now the men's assistant coach at Indiana State. Yep. Uh, I believe he pointed out Iona and their men when they would play really fast with Coach Cluis. They were getting outlet catches like right before half court. I mean, really deep. Um, and we were never that aggressive with it. But for us, uh, in our practices, we, we get it to the point where if you get an outlet pass below the free throw line of the backcourt, it's an automatic turnover. So yeah. we're really trying to get outlet catches out beyond the three-point line where we can take one or two dribbles, be crossing half court, and be ready to roll. So that first initial surge with the depth of the outlet is very helpful. Um, and a point guards then have to know, how, how do we make that happen? Um, so it's, it's their technique of either if they're in the middle, curling up to uh, receive the outlet pass from the middle out, or if they're already on the sideline, just kind of getting their button back to it and shuffling up, up and out, um, just trying to get some depth on those catches. The second thing that we really stress with our point guards is just clarity in regards to what they're looking for. So almost like a quarterback making reads uh, on the football field, we have, we're looking for this, this, then this. Um, and basically that's just the thought process that if you look at one thing, you can kind of see everything, but if you're trying to look for everything, you're going to see nothing. Um, with us, we generally use a two side fast break. We had in the past at least to where um, our very first look for the point guards, can I go early and opposite to that two player side? If I can skip it, change sides of the floor, make that defense go from uh, being in help to being on the ball, that's already creating a closeout that we would love to attack. So that's the very first read we'd look for. Uh, from there, it would be, can I go up the same sideline? And that would be a pass we'd only want to throw if we had an advantage. We don't want to throw up to a guarded girl. Uh, and then our third read would be, if I can't go early and opposite, if I can't go up the sideline, can I get into the paint myself with the dribble and make a play? Uh, and again, not those reads, but that idea uh, we've adapted from Mike Neighbors at Arkansas. He kind of has, you know, I think they're looking for their rabbit over the top first, then their locks in the corner then the point guard trying to make a play from there. I may have got the order wrong, but uh, again, his idea that we just adapted for our team. So I think that clarity really helps the point guard. Uh, and then the third thing, and this is probably with any skill, but just constantly showing what it looks like on film to be done well, and then when it's not being done well. Um, and I think that's one of the best ways to teach is just when, when a player's sitting beside you, you've got your clips pulled up and you can say, okay, let's go ahead and look at these past you know, six possessions from yesterday. These two are really good. These four we need to work on. What do you see? And a lot of times you can kind of see the light bulb goes off in those moments. Um, and then also when you're not stopping a play after every mistake in practice, you can play a little faster. You're practicing a little faster and that's helpful for generating pace as well. So that's just kind of three big things that, that we try to do to help our point guards. So you mentioned Mike neighbors, right? And adapting that to your style. Um, and, and let's be honest, that's what coaching is, right? We're, nobody, none of us at this point have invented any of it, right? Like, you know, maybe we're lucky enough to come up with something super creative, but how do you go about um, like filtering that information, seeing something and be like, wow, yeah, maybe I can do it. And, and then kind of putting it into your, your style and, and your program. Like, you know, what is the process of looking at other teams and, you know, maybe it's European teams, maybe it's, uh, you know, a college team, whatever it may be. How, what is it, What is your guys' process or your process in particular of kind of 
molding that into what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I, th- I think the first thing, it goes back to what I mentioned when we were talking about figuring out how to play with the new team is you have to have core things that you are committed to and that you believe in. Um, and then that kind of serves as the filter for what you can take from other people. Um, and so again, for us, a lot of that is going to be keeping the floor open and spaced, attacking off the catch, sharing the ball, uh, reading and reacting to closeouts. So basically everything that we're watching as a staff that we want to implement into what we do, if it doesn't pass through that filter to where it doesn't let us play that way, we're probably not going to utilize it. Um, the other thing I think that and time just is really helpful with that as well of just like when you have those ideas, you have some success with one thing, you know what you like, and you've seen that happen over time, you really start to develop almost, at least as, as how it is for me, I see everything through our system. And so like whenever I'm watching other teams play, I'm not even necessarily watching what they're doing as much as the individual elements and how I see that in my head plugging into what we do. Um, and I think that just comes over time as, as you kind of stay committed to one thing. So that's kind of a, our process for kind of how we as a staff get together and bounce ideas off each other. It has to pass through those initial filters. And then again, as you have success with something, you start to kind of see everything through that lens, which can be a positive and a negative. But uh, I think so far, it's, it's, it's definitely helped us. So let's get into you. So let's talk about if you became a college head coach down the line, what are things that you would want to do? We'll give you your ideal personnel, whatever you want your personnel to be. What would you want to do offensively? And what would you want to do defensively? And take us through why. Yeah, absolutely. I think offensively, I would do exactly what we've done. Um, I've been very, very, very fortunate to work and learn from Carrie. She is, you know, talking about clarity. She's incredibly clear with what she wants things to look like. And she's also been really helpful for me as I kind of gorge myself on basketball information, um, you know, helping come back to those essential principles and kind of filter it all into what we do. So I really think that's been incredibly transformational in my coaching times, learning from her and working with her uh, to the point where like, I love how we play on offense. And I really, maybe it's not the best way, but certainly it's my favorite way. Um, and I think I, I'd be pretty committed to that. Um, probably the only thing I, I, you know, I guess if we had our, my ideal personnel, I'd, I'd want to shoot more threes than we ever have. Um, and anybody that knows me loves that knows I love shooting threes. Uh, I don't think you can ever take enough of them provided that they're in range rhythm and on balance. Um, but, but love that. That's something I'm certainly committed to. Um, uh, and then defensively, um, you know, again, I, I don't know that I do a ton different, um, because I believe so much in what we do. And it's, it's, it's really what I know. I think the only, my bent is aggressive on both ends of the ball, um, offensively up tempo, always attacking defensively. I really want to match that. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, I, 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 we have emphasized, I would continue to emphasize, and I really can't think of anything I would do starkly different at all than what we're currently doing. So. So you'd be all in and like the uh, Golden State Warriors shooting like 69 threes in, a, in the game. You'd be all in on that? Totally, totally. <laughs> I, I saw that the other day and like I, I had a double take, right? I'm like, oh, man, six, 69, 69 threes. That's that's crazy. But I mean, they also have some of the personnel to do it. So totally, totally. Um, all right. So let's let's go back to transition a little bit and, and talk about post players or fives. Mm-hmm. Um you know, what are you looking for your, your post players to do when they're running? Um, 
And then how does that flow into your, your dribble drive concepts? Yeah, absolutely. So we've traditionally been a five out fast break team, uh, meaning our five is trailing the play. And that is not always the case. So basically the five has to be intelligent and read where they're at on the floor based on when the shot was taken and where they're located. So say for instance, that uh, we hard hedge a ball screen, they're able to kind of hit the roll. Our five is now out and extended. They miss a layup. When we get the rebound, our five is already ahead of the ball. We would like her to run to the rim, stay low, and we'll be playing four out, dribble drive, drive and kick. Um, but if our five is guarding someone more traditional around the rim, they get a rebound, they outlet it to a player either beside or above them. She's then going to go ahead and trail the play to the top of the key. Now we have a traditional five out, two side fast break. Um, and basically our rules for our five there, she just remains spaced until she receives the ball. And then she can either ball screen or dribble handoff in either direction. That would be followed by a roll. And now we're into our four out driving kicks. So she does a little bit of both, but she has to read based on where she's at on the floor. Um, and either way, we want to have really clear and simple solutions for how we get into our driving kick game after transition is over. So I just want to, okay, so then I wanted to ask, I think that's the reads a little bit different because a lot of high school coaches, right, have a system that you're doing this, mm -hmm. your rim run, your, your trail, whatever it may be. So when you get a player in from whatever program they are, how do you kind of coach them up uh, to start learning how to make those reads? Yep. Basically, our rule is if it's not clear, trail. Um, so picking which one you want to see more of that they can default to whenever they're unsure. For us, that's trailing. Uh, and then the second thing is just basically with all of our transition drills, it's really rare that we just like here, take the ball and go transition. We always try to guard an action and then get the transition from there. Um, and a lot of times that's us coaches that are on offense. So, you know, if we want to work on ball screen coverage, perfect. You five guard us, we'll get in, we'll get into this action. When a shot goes up, you're going to rebound the thing and you're going to go five on it down the, the other end. So we would just kind of put the five in actions to where, okay, sometimes she's going to be above the ball. Sometimes she'll be below the ball. Now she's getting those reads. Again, we'll kind of reinforce it after the fact via film. Um, but that, along with just giving them a default that they can go to if they're unsure, is probably the way that it's, that, that, that it's worked the best for us. Well, then you have the five on O where they don't necessarily have to make an offensive decision. They just know right. where, okay, I got I to gotta do this, and then we can build upon it. I like that. That's awesome. So let's kind of go into the dribble drive a little bit, and let's kind of go into decision-making. You know, uh, the, the original dribble drive goes back to the rack zone and the free throw line and, and kind of all those things. What are kind of the decision points you kind of talk to your kids about within your half court offense? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing to learn dribble drive wise from a decision making standpoint, uh, really in regard to making the offense flow is the driver knowing, OK, when am I by my defender and I need to kind of keep this dribble going? And when do I need just to move it and play with the next player? Uh, and teaching and reading that is very difficult. So what we do, instead of having the floor broken up into the rack zone, the drag zone, the drop zone, we don't utilize any of those spots or that terminology. Um, we treat our dribble drive really as a motion offense to where players have to read and react to what they see and what the player beside them is doing. And so for us, a lot of that is reading shoulders and chest of the driver. So say, for instance, Todd, you are in the uh, right corner. 
and I'm driving the ball to you, if my chest and shoulders are facing the baseline, that's communicating to you that I'm attacking. And we just want you hanging in that corner, giving me space. But if I'm driving at you in that corner and my chest and shoulders are facing the sideline and it's a much flatter angle, my body language communicates to you, come on out of the corner, shorten this pass. I just want to be a mover. Um, so that's one of the things that we kind of use as a teaching point for our girls off the ball for like, when do I stay in the corner versus when do I fill? Because again, we're not jump stopping at the elbow and letting that be a cue for that girl to lift up out of the corner. Um, then the other side of that is, okay, the driver has to be making these same decisions, right? Um, and one of the things that we're always trying to be aware of is we don't want our girls to be unaggressive on their drives. If you're going to be a really good drive and kick team, you got to have girls that believe and want contact that want to get in the paint that believe they can make plays. Um, so what we don't, you know, it's really a delicate balance to be like, always second guessing you weren't by her. Now you were by her. Um, so again, for us, we just talk about two dribble decisions and anything on the drive where my defender is not chest to chest with me means that I'm winning the battle. So if on my second dribble, I need a defender's chest, it's time for me to stop working downhill and work out to the sideline. Um, but if on my first or second dribble, my shoulder is in your chest and you're on my hip, I'm not guarded. I'm going to keep using that small advantage and go to the basket, either score myself or pass to where the help came from. And we'll just keep playing from there. So a lot of our drills, build-up games, small-sided games are putting them in those positions to where they are constantly making those reads. Um, and then as that muscle memory and as those habits are get built, it gets better and better. And, and so right now we're kind of getting to relearn what that's like with a new team that hasn't played this way before. Um, and that's been really good for us as coaches to learn better ways to teach it, refine it, and get back to those kind of first principles that make it work really well. So that's the biggest decision um, in regard to making the offense work. There's obviously all the decisions uh, from a skill standpoint that would go into it as well, knowing when we need to you know, shoot it, um, which finishing move to make, which passes to make and all of that. But the biggest ones are how do we keep dribble drive being a five-man offense and not a one-man offense with four spectators? And so much of that is reading shoulders and chest. So you actually led us into the next question, but I want to do a little quick follow-up beforehand. So now we have dribble drive and obviously you're teaching them to attack. What, you know, what are you working on with finishing, right? Because that's the ultimate goal. Like if they can, they can get to the rack and, and, and finish it. Um, what do you got? What are you guys working on with your, your finishes and, and teaching your players how to finish around the rim? Yep, absolutely. So I think we might be in the minority um, that we don't like yelling, and scream about always finishing off two feet. We want our players to play off one leg at the rim every chance they get because it's faster and quicker. Um, and so when I'm driving to the basket, if I'm in one of those scenarios where you're, where you're not chest to chest with me, my goal is to go play off one leg, finish fast and rip the rim off. Um, and then from there, we kind of build everything backwards from those one leg finishes. So there's, there's essentially five finishes that we teach. Um, the first three are off one leg finishing fast, which is just an outside hand reach. So I'm going to the basket. I put my palm under the ball. I get my elbow away from my body. I angle my shoulders so I'm nice and long reaching out to the basket. Um, the second one is what we call a sneak finish, which is the same, but now I'm doing that finish with my inside hand and kind of sneaking it right up. Uh, I think James Harden, Steve Nash, guys that draw fouls, um, just an awkward way to finish. Um, and then the reverse, which is just the same layup going behind the backboard this time. 
And we break that out when our drives take us below the block and we have a flatter angle. Um, then when it comes to playing off two, we really want to play off two when we see bodies in front of us low. So if I'm driving to the basket and there's a player on my hip and I come to a two foot stop, that lets them back into the play, that lets them, them get physical. We wanna go off one in those scenarios. Um, but whenever I'm driving and I see clutter, I see a crowd or I see a defender's chest, now I wanna jump stop. And from there we have our power finish, which is for our stronger, more aggressive players. They love that. Um, and then the fifth finish that we teach is just the step through, but essentially the step through could be a million different finishes because it's just the idea of landing on two of being creative with my pivots to create different finishing lanes in and around different defenders. Um, and from there, most of the times too, I would say that power finish or those step throughs, they lead to us throwing passes a lot more than they, than they lead to us taking shots. Um, and then I guess the final part, which is not necessarily part of our five finishes, um, but we, we also work a lot on drill post-ups for our guards. So when they get to the block, if they're going really hard and they lose their advantage late, rather than picking up the ball, landing on two and getting small where everybody can get out and deny, we wanna flip our hips and turn our dribble into a post-up where we have a live dribble. Everyone's unsure of what's happening. And from there, I can be a scorer for a bigger guard or I can be a passer for a smaller guard. And it just gives us some options of how to be protected after we lose our advantage. And that's an idea that we got from Doug Novak, uh, formerly at Bethel, uh, University of Minnesota, now the head women's coach at Mississippi State. So, um, but he's been immensely helpful to us as well. Oh, that's that's really good stuff. So now I want to transition to a small side of the games you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and and for our listeners, uh, Coach has a tremendous small sided game uh, a playbook. I guess you'd call it right. It's it's amazing. Um, and we'll give you a chance to to promote that. And check it out. But I I have it. I look at it all the time. Oh, cool. Um, but, um, you know, how are you putting those together? What, what do you, you know, what are you looking for? Um, how do you, you know, part them out based on situations, actions, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, basically we use them a lot to teach skills and, and to teach offense. And so that's the first two categories that we're going to break them up into is, are we working on skills, the actual hard, hard skills of shooting, driving, passing, finishing, protection plans. We have a set that work on those. And then we have another set that allow us to work on the reads decisions that come with our actual specific offense. One of them being that decision of, am I driving and I can get by my girl or did my girl stop me? Um, so for the first one, basically the way that we try to do everything is we have a bunch of games that are one-on-one -on -one advantage games for the driver to where you're going downhill, your defender's out of position, you have a chance to score. Um, and so basically that's putting the defender in one of a few places, either putting the defender clear behind the offense to whenever I start driving, you can chase me and I'm going to have chances to use my reach and sneak finishes, then moving that defender to my side to where you're not, we're not chest to chest, but I have to kind of hit you and keep you out of the play uh, to go score or putting the uh, defender in front of me, but putting their back to me and I stick the ball in their back and I can rip it off and go either way. Those are three different kind of one-on-one -on -one games that we play to teach finishing. Um, and then from there, you can just start adding people to the floor. So you can put a player in the corner and now you're playing two on two with that same start where you can do three on three. Uh, you can do three on three with a player, you know, on the opposite block and the perimeter player. So you have all those options for how you can build it up. Um, but then we also try to put players in games too for teaching our shooting footwork and decisions on attacking closeouts to where 
they have long closeouts to attack. And so uh, basically in a lot of those, they basically work one way to where if I have, I'm on offense, I'm holding the ball. Let's say I'm on the right wing. You're on defense, you're facing me. And we have a coach uh, in the right corner. Whenever I throw the ball to the coach in the right corner, I'm going to slide to the top of the key. The defender who is in front of me is going to go touch us, you know, a cone or something in the paint and then close out. So when the ball is in flight back to me, we have a recovering defender. And if they're, you know, giving us space, we'll shoot it. If they take our space away, we'll put the ball on the deck. We'll take the space behind them at the rim and score that way. Uh, and again, you can keep adding people to that. So that's kind of how all of our skill work, small-sided games go in a very simplified way. Um, and then the ones that we use for our offense basically are taking those same one-on-one -on -one starts and just aligning the floor uh, to the alignments that we play out of. So it could be driving to a single side where there's one player in the corner. It could be driving to a side of the floor where there's a player spaced uh, in the slot and in the corner. It could be with a post player on the block that I'm driving to and they're looping underneath the rim. All of those things, we just kind of, whatever situations we're struggling with or decisions where we're not doing well, we have a, a way to start that game and we just kind of manipulate the rules to make that happen. So that's that's a pretty zoomed out version of, of what it looks like, but um, we, we love using them and I think our team is learning to love them as well, so. All right, so uh, uh, I wanna go two questions here because we're gonna, I'm gonna tie one in, you mentioned earlier, but your, your uh, decision-making on attack, mm -hmm. um, obviously that's a big, read and dribble drive right knowing when you have the advantage things like that so what are you teaching your players uh to read on 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 the catch i guess or, or you know you fill whatever whatever it may be on on the drive uh when to know when to attack or when to know when to move it yep absolutely so uh probably five or six years ago i think jay wright became really popular when they won the national championship with his like catch the shoot philosophy to where all the players footwork, thought process, hands, it's all designed so they can shoot if they have space. So we've adopted that um, to where we want our players on every single catch, peeking at the rim, catching with footwork that would allow them to shoot if they have space. And then from there, we can always stop our shot and turn it into a drive. Um, so we're pretty detailed with how we teach our footwork in regard to how we catch it, how we drive left, how we drive right. We're a permanent pivot foot team. So all of that plays a big role into it. Um, and again, always defaulting to catch it. Uh, and then again, it's, it's pretty easy to where if you, if you have space, we want to shoot it. And if you are getting that space taken away, the defender is now giving you space behind them. We want to go ahead and use that space. Um, and then from a really practical standpoint, when we're playing five on five, if you find yourself continually driving into your defender's chest, that's a cue that you probably need to shoot the ball because they're playing about four feet off of you. Um, so that we're constantly talking to our players about that. And then again, there, you talk about learning your players and learning your team. There has to be leeway there, right? Like we have one or two girls on our roster right now that are absolutely tremendous at not catching the shoot. They're really good catching almost with a running start thinking drive and like, Lord have mercy, no one is stopping them. Um, and so those players need to hear from the staff in private moments that like, you're so good when you're doing this, listen to what we're saying keep doing what you're doing um and we're completely okay with that so there's a balance to all of that for sure but our default is to catch the shoot um and again if, you, if you're just driving into people's chest you're probably not looking for your shots so all right so now i want to pull it out maybe to summer for you guys right um individual training because you mentioned that earlier that 
you did that for a while. Um, what does your individual training look like? Because a lot of times that's maybe one-on-one or a, a couple of players. You're not, you don't have that small-sided aspect even um, in there. So when you get into that individual training, you know, what are the things you're emphasizing, working on, um, you know, trying to get your players to. Re- yeah, absolutely. So uh, two, two kind of big frameworks that, that I've used, they essentially say the same thing. Um, but point guard college PGC has like a teaching progression that they call teaching, learning, competing. Um, I think they got that from Mike McKay of Canada basketball, but essentially that's just the first thing you're going to do is teach the skills one on O all technique, all form. Then the next level, once that's been somewhat masters, you're going to put that into a learning environment where now there's decisions to be made. And then the final, um, and those decisions are probably scripted, right? To where it's, okay, we're going to take three reps. You can choose one of these two things. Um, and then the final stage is just to go compete uh, where you're playing live one-on-one or whatever that might look like. Cody Topper at Memphis, I think he calls it uh, read, script, and play to where, I'm sorry, uh, drill, script, play. Um, or script read and play, I can't remember, but nonetheless, same idea to where like it's dictated by the coach, then there's some decisions, then there's live competition. So to use the example of shooting uh, for us, we're going to break down the individual components of what that looks like to shoot off the catch. So the first part is, you know, the footwork, like how, how we teach footwork, what that looks like. We're going to teach that skill. We're going to get a lot of reps off of that footwork. Then we're going to talk about, okay, that footwork into stopping my shot and driving right that footwork stopping my shot driving left um and then from there now it'll be me with the player i'm gonna flip the ball to them if i give them space they catch with that footwork they respond with the shot i flip them the ball they catch with that footwork i take their space away they stop their shot they turn it into a drive now they're downhill um and, and then depending on you know who you are how youthful you might be if it's just doing a player like we play one-on-one against our girls all the time so I've injured myself playing against our teams uh, far, far too many times. I was going to say, I'm not that youthful anymore. I don't, I don't got it in me anymore. But even, you know, if we try to do all of our workouts in groups of three or four, just so that we can kind of utilize some live, live defense to a point. Um, But again, we, we really try to kind of follow that, that same method to where we're just teaching the skills. Then we're working on the decisions. Then we're playing live, hoping that there's some carryover. Uh, between those three levels and, and always coming back to it as well so so let's kind of get into what to look for to know your offense is working so mm-hmm. for you what are like those those either statistics or just motion or ball reversals or whatever it is what are those things that you and your staff know your offense is working yep absolutely so there's a handful, you know, for us, the biggest measure of our offense is going to be points per possession. We want to know, are we being efficient? Um, and so that's just basically if we have 80 possessions, how many points are we scoring uh, within those 80 possessions? Hopefully the number would be 80. We'd be floating right around one. Um, you know, for us in women's basketball, at least at the division two level, I, I assume it holds true in division one, but I don't know the data. If you're above 0.90, you're going to be really good. Um, you know, last year at Cedarville, we had a points per possession of one, and we had the third most efficient offense at any level of women's basketball, division one, two, three, NAI, junior college, doesn't matter. Um, and, and we were tremendous offensively. So that's the first thing that, that we're looking for. What, what plays into points per possession really is three things. Um, number one, not turning the ball over. 
if you have empty possession after empty possession after empty possession, it's going to really hurt your points per possession. So taking care of the ball is a really good fact that's that's kind of seen in that. Um, obviously, making threes helps because you're getting that extra point. Um, but you don't have to be tremendous. Really, if, if you're above 33% from three, you're, you're at one point per shot right there. So um, that's tremendously helpful. And then the third thing is just getting to the free throw line, which is a big reason why we play the way that we do. We want to be shooting free throws, um, dribbling, attacking the paint with the way that the game is officiated and called certainly gives you a lot of those chances. So um, those are kind of the three things that if you want to improve your points per possession, you really should focus on. Uh, and that's helped us a lot. The second thing that, that is always a measure for us is just the percentage of um, Basically, if you look at if we, if we take 50 shots in the game, we want to know what percent of those are coming at the rim, what percent of those are coming behind the three point line, and then what percentage are coming in in that like mid range type area. Um, and each year we adjust our shot profile based on our personnel. Um, and so like at our with the Cedarville team, we were a great shooting team. So we were basically at the point where we wanted to be shooting 50 percent of our shots at the rim. 40% of our shots behind the line, and then 10% of our shots can come from any other place. And again, all of our plays, actions, quick hitters are generating those shots. Um, with our team outright state, that we're going to want that number at the rim to go higher. Um, and probably, you know, that'll come just by taking some of the attempts behind three, putting them in at the rim. Um, but again, still trying to keep a small mid-range percentage. Not that we don't mind mid-range shots, it's just that they need to come within the flow of what you do. Um, so we want to know what percentage of our total offense is coming from those three areas. That's a big one for us. And then the third one is paint touches. That's just huge for us. Um, every year, every practice, we're always kind of statting and charting. Uh, you know, we got the, the ball into the paint on 80% of our possessions. And on those possessions, we were at what field goal percentage. And without a doubt, when we're getting the ball in the paint, we're really performing well. So those are three things that we're really big on. Um, we've never been a staff to chart ball reversals or number of passes or anything like that. Um, I think there's merit in those things. You know, we've talked a lot with our current team about reversing the ball and playing together because um, that is an emphasis. But at there, there's a fine line there. Like, you're not passing the ball for the heck of it. Like, you need to pass the ball because it's the right play to make. Um, and so we, we, we've never been big at using that as, like, a measure of our offense, but certainly it does matter. So as we get into our final two segments, the first one we call 30-second timeout. Um, it's, it's your platform to talk about anything you want to talk about, about you or your program or a charity or an organization or something outside of the game of basketball you're passionate about, and anything you want to talk about. Uh, it's, it's your 30 seconds. Uh, it's a loose 30 seconds. There's no referee in your timeout telling you the 30 seconds is over. So the floor is yours. All right. Uh, this was the hardest question I thought you guys asked. I, I'm not a, I'm not the most diverse person. Like I like what I like. Um, I love basketball. I love my wife. But th those are the and, and not in that order. I love my wife first. Basketball second. So um, we heard but, you know, what you said. What's that? We heard what you said. Basketball. Yeah. We heard basketball first. Um, but but no, I mean that definitely is is kind of what my life is built around is those two things. Uh, my family is super important to me. That's one of the the biggest things that I love about working for Carrie uh, and and in our program is it's it's a family program. And so, just as I think about our program at Wright State, the kind of life I want to live as a husband, as a man, um, I love the fact that there's a really blurred line between 
our coaching and our lives. And so like just last Friday, my wife was at practice. She hangs out with the girls. The girls are, they're at our house. Coach Hoffman's got three little kids. They're in our gym all the time. Um, and so I think like in a profession like coaching, that's very demanding, very competitive, can be very stressful to have that balance uh, to where your family can just kind of join you and be invested in it has been a really special experience for me. And I'm beyond thankful, uh, number one, for my wife and how great she's been. And then also for Coach Hoffman, just creating that environment within our program where it's a normal thing. So just quickly before we move on, I, I actually like something you said, because we asked so many coaches about work-life balance and we all know how it is in the season, whether you're your professional college, high school, it doesn't matter. During the season, you're swapped. So I, I kind of like that almost there's a blurred line of your wife hangs out at practice and it, it's almost like family and basketball mesh. I, I think that's really cool. Absolutely. It's a, I think that's just the best way to do it, at least for us in college. Like, certainly, we're, it's not like we're out here solving the world's biggest problems. We, we chase an orange ball up and down the floor, um, but we do spend a lot of time doing it. And so the, the busier seasons when it's just you're going from game to game, road trip to road trip, recruiting trip to recruiting trip, to be able to do that alongside the people that you love really does make a big difference. And then, of course, being able to maximize the offseason as well, I think, is super important. So I just think it's really seasonal. Like you're, you're on and when you're on, you're on. And when you're off, you can be off. And um, again, I think Coach Hoffman's just done a great job modeling that and then creating that environment with, within our team for sure. No, I, I think that's totally important because that's, kind of why I'm in the program where I'm at as well. So that's, it's a very, it makes a, it makes a tremendous difference in your season and, and your, your, your coaching. So the next segment, we're going to go quick hitters, uh, just kind of random questions. Uh, we'll throw them at you. You can answer them any way you like. Um, might be basketball, might not be. Um, so your favorite team, um, maybe you're like sneaky favorite team that others might not know you like, like, Maybe somebody you're watching, maybe somebody you, you really like, your favorite kid team, whatever it may be. It has to be basketball. Is that correct? No, it could be anybody you want. Okay, it could be yeah, anything you yeah. want. Okay. Well, my there's only one sports team I follow. It's Penn State football. Um, okay. I love Penn State football. So that there's my thing. Absolutely. Well, they can't be taking dives, right? They can't be faking like they're injured, right? Oh, good that, grief. That was something, wasn't it? They have big controversy. That was ridiculous. All right. So if you can't tell Todd and I have fun with the quick hitter segment, this is our favorite segment. I love it. Um, all right. So we got your best or your favorite point guard, but take out Magic Johnson. So you could say any yeah. other point guard, best or favorite point guard, not Magic. Yeah. I'm going to go with Steve Nash. That there was a no brainer for me. Um, just whenever I was, I, I was a very average player, but like he was so relatable for me. I just like looked like me, was skinny, not very tall. Um, I tried to model my game after him and then also kind of fell in love with probably playing the way that we play in yep. large part because of, of Steve Nash, just the way they play with the Suns and just yep. the ability to kind of be aggressive and try to score yourself, but then use that well to set others up. So he's, he's my go-to favorite for sure. All right. The, the universal question, best way to get your players in shape. I think playing is, is, is the best way. Um, you know, it's really hard to mimic getting into basketball shape we've not for the last three years taken our team on the track or done anything like that and we've had no problems being in shape so provided you practice the right way you get up and down you have quick transitions i think there's just just getting in the gym and playing is a really good way to do that all right so if you're anything like me you rather watch a football game where it's no huddle fast pace and go now that we know you like penn state football 
-hmm. But would you rather, if you had to, watch a football game that ends with a score of three to zero or a baseball game that ends in a score of one to zero? I'm, I'll watch football any day of the week. I, I'm not a big baseball fan. So 3-0 football is fine with me, absolutely. See, I like the 1-0 baseball game because, you know, it went quickly. I'm a baseball guy. I played baseball all the way through college. But, you know, the pitchers bad. are dealing with it. I go for the player's standpoint. I'm like, oh, this game got done in a couple hours. All right, great. Love it. Uh, so, all right, dribble drive teams to study. For, for people that are looking to get more information on dribble drive, obviously – uh, Cedarville, you guys, you go, you have a lot of good stuff on that, but like, you know, and, and right say it'll be good, but uh, just teams that you can see on dribble drive. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple come to mind. Um, Coach Neighbors teams have been really good to study. So either his teams at Arkansas or even a couple of years ago back at Washington. Um, there's some old YouTube videos out there. I think somebody broke down a lot of the Washington dribble drive, which is, which is a good thing to see um not pure dribble drive but I love how they play and a lot of it is similar is the women's team at Colorado State Ryan Williams is the head coach out there does a really good job just they share the ball they make quick decisions um so they're really fun to watch uh I would say Nate Oates at Alabama and then his yeah. teams at Buffalo as well are really good to watch um Doug Novak's teams uh probably Mississippi State women this year Bethel in previous years, I think I'm always checking out what they're up to. Um, those are the big ones that come to mind immediately. I hope I'm not leaving anybody obvious out. Um, I think that's what I got for that. So, All right. So we got up three, seven seconds to foul or play it out. You're up three, seven seconds to go. Are you fouling or are you playing it out? And you have one to give. You have a foul to give. I would foul. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in fouling up three, um, provided we have a team that's built to rebound and foul well. Uh, I think it has to be practiced, but I think there's absolute. I just, and, and to me, I like the stoppages. I like being able to coach in those dead, dead moments. Um, and I think the best explanation I've heard of fouling up three is a lot more has to go uh, right for the offense. They've got to make the first one, miss the second one, get the rebound, and score it. Um, that's a lot of variables for sure. And if we do our job, I think we're in good, good positions. So, all right, well now, now I got a quick follow-up. So let's say you're, you're down three. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you, let's say there's 15 seconds to go, 20 seconds to go. Are you going quick two or are you going right to three? Yeah. So generally speaking, I like to have the option to go either. Um, and so it, it would be a play where we are attacking the rim trying to get a layup um, like I think hammer actions are really good not to tip my hand I, I love hammer actions but you know you have a drive going to the rim you've got that hammer on the opposite side so if you don't have the two you have a look at the three and quite honestly those develop within three to four seconds and so even though we're going to shoot maybe earlier than we'd like to we also have a chance to get an offensive rebound or if we don't score we can foul and extend the game um, and so I think all of those reasons are I guess I cheated by saying both um, but I'm giving you specifically kind of what I like in that scenario. So, all right, your go-to transition drill. Like, if you could only pick one at all, that's the only thing you could do all practice for transition. What are you doing? Yeah, I think I would go with uh, we call it transition progression. And so basically, uh, you have a free throw shooter, two yep. people on the line. Yeah, you take the a free good one. throw, two on one down, and you just add a player every time. Three on two, yeah. So yeah. We, we we go longer. So we go. 
two on one going down, two on two back, three oh. on two, three oh. on three, four oh. on three, four on four, five on uh five on four, and then five on five. So it's a lot of trips up and down, a lot you can count. Uh, switch which team starts. Um, because one team kind of has the even the whole time and one team has the advantage, but um that, that I think that there would be my go-to. Listen, at the high school level, we just got to figure out how to get the three on two, the four on three. So if you yeah, go two on two, that might that might put the whole kibosh on it. The whole the, the, that might take forever. Wait a minute, coach. You want me to go in, but not her. But then the yeah, next exactly, time, exactly. Oh, I love we, it. <laughs> um, we're not we we're not immune to that either. <laughs> All right. So to finish up, maybe for you, the coolest piece of memorabilia you have. So it could be cards or game balls or shoes or an autographed picture or any kind of sports memorabilia you have that you like. Or even something maybe from your, from a team that you've coached that yeah. they give you something. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was a senior in high school, I tore my ACL in October. So before the year even started. So I was done playing. Uh, and, and again, I wasn't very good, but I loved to play. So it definitely upset me. But through that experience, I kind of fell in love with coaching. Um, and so through that started to probably do what most people want to get into coaching do. They start reading about John Wooden really kind of fell in love with what he taught, what he was all about. Um, and so then through that experience, a family friend actually gave me a framed and signed pyramid of success from John. Wooden. Oh, that's and really so cool. That, that hangs in my office. And that that's, that's probably my favorite piece of like sports memorabilia. Yeah, well, that, that could be even a, that's a go-to for life. To be yeah, honest. Ab- that, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. Well, coach, this was that I was just looking at my time and this was an hour and it felt like it was five minutes. So uh, you brought up Mike neighbors a million times, but uh, that was one of my favorites and this might not be one of my favorites. So really? thanks again for joining us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I certainly enjoyed getting to speak with both of you and love what you guys are about and, and all that you're doing to share the game as well. So thank you. <laughs>